Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Eva Amson, welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Thermo Fisher Scientific is the world leader in serving science with a mission to enable their customers to make the world healthier, cleaner and safer. Thermo Fisher serves both academic and industrial life sciences researchers, providing an unmatched combination of complete workflow solutions ranging from cryo-EM structural determination of macromolecular complexes and protein sociology in the native state, to reconstruction of 3D architecture of tissues and cells. Their solutions help researchers unlock the mysteries of underlying protein function and cellular process and bridge the gap between basic science and translational therapeutics. Today's presentation is titled Visualizing Membrane Dynamics by Electron Microscopy and it's being presented by Shigeki Watanabe from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Shigeki is a neuroscientist recognized for discovering ultra-fast synaptic vesicle recycling mechanisms using novel electron microscopy approaches. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Utah in 2004 and his PhD from the University of Utah in 2013. For his postdoctoral work, he moved to Christian Rosenmund's lab in Berlin, Germany, and studied synaptic transmission and plasticity in mammalian central synapses. In 2016, Shigeki established his laboratory in the Department of Cell Biology at Johns Hopkins University, primarily studying the cellular and molecular basis of synaptic transmission and plasticity. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Shigeki at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Shigeki, for the presentation. Okay, so thank you so much for uh, tuning in today. Uh, today I'm gonna tell you about how we visualize membrane and protein dynamics with electron microscopy and how we implemented the 3D volume imaging using oxygen plasma beam. And so um, first, um, I'm going to talk about a little bit of science. So my lab is really interested in understanding the cell biological uh, synaptic transmission. This is the fundamental processes that uh, neurons do to communicate with each other. And so say like when neurons receive some sort of input, say touch, uh, this information is re related to the next neuron in, in the form of electrical signals or action potentials. And then when the action potential arrives at the contact sites between two neurons, this electrical signal turns into the chemical signals, and this is how the neurotransmission actually takes place. And so if we zoom into this region here, uh, the contact site, uh, this is called synapses, uh, we have these vesicles that contain chemical signals or neurotransmitters. 
And when the action potential arrives at the synaptic terminals, the membrane potential changes, and then in response, the voltage gated calcium channels open, allowing the calcium to uh, come into the synaptic, synaptic terminals, and then this allows vesicles to fuse. And so let's say that if this is a glutamate molecule, uh, this is going to bind to the glutamate receptor on the postsynaptic uh, side, and then this allows uh, the opening of these receptors, allowing sodium to go in, and then this then uh, generates action potential in the next cell. And so the basic of uh, synaptic transmission is well described, but the molecular details and how this really happens is still quite uh, debated. And so my lab is really interested in understanding how this really happens at the, uh, at the cellular scale, and then also the molecular uh, mechanism of synaptic transmission. And so uh, if you were to actually look at this by electron microscopy, uh, this is actually how it looks like. It's actually quite um, complicated. And so you can see that these organelles, uh, synaptic vesicles that contain neurotransmitter, uh, they are actually quite tiny. Uh, they are only 40 nanometer in diameter and they contain this neurotransmitter or chemical signals, right? Uh, but they are so clustered that with the light microscopy, you cannot actually see um, individual vesicles and how they actually behave. The only way that you can actually visualize these uh, vesicles uh, by electromicroscopy. But the biggest issues with electromicroscopy is that you cannot actually visualize the, um, their dynamics because um, electromicrograph is basically a static image, right? And you cannot actually see any proteins that are uh, supposed to regulate these processes. There are about 3,000 different species of proteins regulating synaptic transmission, but we, can, we cannot see any of these proteins. And also with the electromicroscopy, we are cutting the tissues so thin, uh, we are cutting at 40 nanometer. And so if you wanted to uh, look at how they actually look like in 3D space, you have to do a lot of reconstruction to actually uh, see this. And so even a question like which vesicles are actually used for neurotransmission, and then where actually they fuse, where do these vesicles actually fuse relative to the receptors? We cannot actually answer these questions by just looking at the electron micrograms. And so in order to actually uh, overcome these issues and then really ask, answer these questions, we came up with a way to visualize membrane protein dynamics in a 3D space. And so first I'm gonna talk about how we visualize membrane dynamics uh, using Zappin freeze technique. And then we, and then we also develop a, a technique to look at protein dynamics. This is called small metal affinity staining of histide or SMASH. And then uh, uh, third, uh, we uh, collaborated with uh, Samuel Fisher to look at the 3D uh, volume of these tissues at the ultra-high resolution using oxygen plasma bleeding. Okay, so let me just tell you about how we actually visualize membrane dynamics. Uh, this is called Zappin Freeze electron microscopy. And so the idea is quite simple. What we wanted to do is to stimulate neuron and freeze tissues at defined time points after stimulation so that we can actually visualize how um, Membrane dynamics actually, membrane architecture actually changes over time. And so, um, in order to do this, uh, we collaborate with the Leica to actually generate this device that allows us to stimulate neuron and freeze tissues at defined time points. And so, we built this device um, uh, in part uh, by uh, Wayne Davis in Eric Jorgensen lab. And then, uh, the way that this actually works is that we have this. Uh, light 
sensitive uh, switch, uh, which also has a capa uh, this also has a capacitor on it. And then when you shine the light onto this uh, switch, the the circuit closes, allowing the capacitor to discharge, so that you can actually stimulate neurons that's uh, embedded within this uh, space here. And so here is another schematic uh, with the animations. And so when sh when you shine the light for one millisecond, this circuit closes allowing the capacitor to discharge and then allowing neurons to be stimulated for one millisecond. And this induces actual potential in neurons. And what you do is you freeze tissues at defined time points after the stimulations. And in our uh, case, uh, we let's say that we uh, freeze five milliseconds after the stimulation. And this is the peak of neurotransmission, as you can see in this diagram. And so just to show you that this technique actually works, um, what we uh, what we did was we stimulate neuron and then look at these time points when the neurotransmission is at its peak. And so we are expecting these vesicles to fuse with the uh, plasma membrane and then um, collapse into the membrane for neurotransmission. And so can we actually capture that moment? And indeed we, we can. And so here is the image. This is the no stimulation control over here. Uh, what you can see is that uh, these vesicles that are uh, docked or waiting for waiting at the present membrane for calcium uh, to come, calcium signal, signal to come in. Uh, but when you look at five milliseconds after the stimulations, you can see that some of these vesicles are actually fusing with the present membrane and some, some of them are actually already collapsing to the membrane. And so we can actually capture the moment when the neurons are communicating with each other with this technique. But again, this is actually a 2D image. And so you have to do some sort of a 3D serial section reconstructions to really tell where these vesicles are actually fusing in, in this uh, particular regions. And so we can do that um, by serial sectioning. Uh, this is actually time consuming, but uh, we can definitely do that. And so this is the beginning of the synapses. And then you can see uh, going through this um, volume, you start seeing a uh, fusion event happening uh, multiple of these uh, fusion bits that are actually found within this active zone, uh, where the active zone is the region where the vesicles fuse. And it, uh, in fact, in this particular synapses, we saw uh, 11 uh, fusion bits that uh, actually are captured uh, in this particular case. And so with the serial sectioning, uh, we can actually see where the uh, vesicles uh, actually fuse. Uh, this white uh, circles are uh, the remaining vesicles. Uh, this uh, omega figure uh, is the fusion uh, fusing vesicles. And you can see the relationship between uh, the remaining vesicles and then where the vesicles actually fuse in a particular synapses uh, by uh, reconstructions. This is a case for 1.2 millimolar morphological calcium concentration. Uh, we can elevate the calcium concentration uh, to 2 millimolar and then 4 millimolar and then do exactly the same experiment, um, but you can start seeing more and more vesicles actually fuse within uh, uh, each synapsis. And then a lot of uh, these fusion events are actually clustered uh, within the synapsis. And so this allows us to actually really map uh, where the release takes place uh, in the active zone. So with the zap and freeze technique, we can really visualize membrane dynamics of the synapsis. What about the protein dynamics? Where are the proteins? Where are the proteins relative to these fusing vesicles? And so to address this, we came up with a new technique uh, called SMASH, uh, small metal affinity stain of his tag. 
And so the, the, the way that this, work, this works is that we express, we type the protein of interest, in this case, uh, AMPA receptor, or one of the glutamate receptors that you find in a postsynaptic membrane uh, with the histide, polyhistidine tag. And then uh, because polyhistidine actually has a high affinity to nickel, uh, we can actually conjugate gold particles to the uh, nickel through NPA. And then uh, we can apply this extracellular uh, in, in an extracellular solution. And then this actually binds uh, the histag, uh, histag proteins. And we can actually visualize where these proteins are by electron microscopy because gold particles are electron dense. And so with this approach, uh, we can actually come with uh, the smash approach and then we can combine it with the zap and freeze to really visualize the membrane and protein dynamics at, uh, at the millisecond uh, temporal resolutions. And so just to show you that this technique actually works, uh, here is the histide gray um, 2 uh, ampericeptor uh, subunit. Uh, you can see uh, the gold particles within the postsynaptic density uh, or synaptic graft uh, in this case. And then, but if you, if you were to express a non-histag protein, and in this case, we use a helotag as a control, uh, you can see that there's no gold particles found in the synaptic graph. And so we can quantify the number of gold particles. Uh, you can see that uh, only histag uh, case, uh, with the protein with the histag, you can actually see these gold particles accumulated in the synaptic uh, graph. And so this technique really works. And so with this, uh, what we decided to do is to ask these questions, where are the fusion, fusing vesicles relative to the receptors? And so uh, there are two types of uh, glutamate receptors, um, two more abundant uh, glutamate receptors that you find in these hippocampal neurons. Uh, one of them is called AMPA receptor, which has low affinity to glutamate. So they have to be really close to where the vesicles actually fuse in order to be activated. If they are too far away, they cannot be activated. And so this relationship between release sites or fusing vesicles to the receptors actually really matters for neurotransmission. There's another uh, type of uh, glutamate receptor called NMDA receptor. Uh, this is actually quite important for plasticity of uh, synaptic transmission, changing the strength of the uh, synaptic connections. And uh, the reason for this is that NMDA receptor actually is uh, differ from AMPA receptor in that uh, it also allows calcium to come in into the uh, cell and then calcium acts as a secondary messenger uh, to activate a uh, lot of uh, downstream uh, molecules. And so uh, NMDA receptor has a higher affinity. Uh, their uh, location uh, was thought to be, um, it doesn't matter too much to the synaptic transmission. Uh, at least that's how uh, people thought about it. Uh, but when we started doing this experiment, looking at two different types of receptors, uh, their location was actually quite different. And so in fact, if you do a uh, histag on AMPA receptors versus histag on NMDA receptors, their location was actually quite different. And so this was even obvious with the 2D images of these uh, synapses. And you can see that the AMPA receptor seems to localize towards the edge of the synaptic uh, um, terminals whereas NMDA receptors uh, seems to concentrate near the center of the um, uh, synaptic profiles. And we can quantify this, and you can see that their distribution within that uh, postsynaptic density is actually quite different. 
And so you can see that the NMDA receptors are more clustered towards the center. Uh, this is the center of the uh, postnatal density. Uh, this is towards the edge. And you can see that they are more uh, centrally localized, whereas AMPA receptors are uh, much more um, uh, edge localized uh, compared to NMDA receptors. But this is actually really 2D profiles. Uh, and so we wanted to actually really look at this in 3D and then uh, do a serial section reconstructions of uh, how these receptors are localized. But the problem here is that the gold particles that we used is only 10 nanometer. And we can only physically cut the sections by 40 nanometer uh, thickness. And so you have to be able to cut it much thinner and then have all these resolution that we need to visualize where the peaks are, where the uh, receptors are. And so in order to do this, uh, we actually turned into uh, option plasma beam imaging uh, with the thermal fissure. And so uh, Tveta, uh, my friend, um, and also a colleague um, in the field, uh, she's a uh, uh, product manager of this um, um, pipeline for doing uh, 3D imaging with the oxygen plasma focusing beam SEM. And uh, she uh, came talk to me about uh, this new uh, pipeline that allows us to do exactly uh, what I mentioned, which is to do a high resolution imaging with the um, uh, much more uh, thinner uh, sections. And so this is uh, the thermal fissure hydra uh, using oxygen plasma focus imaging. And so normally when you do focus ion beam milling and uh, to do zero block phase imaging, uh, the way that you do this is to make a little trench and then you have an electron beam and you have a focus ion beam uh, from the angle. And then uh, the way that you do this is that you image the surface of this uh, little trench and then you come in with the focus ion beam to mill away uh, some of the sections. And this is actually quite a slow process. So you have to image, you have to mill, uh, you have, then you can have a new surface, you image, and then mill the sample, and then you uh, do this repeatedly until you have the desired volume. The problem is that, um, as you can see, the trench is actually quite small, and you can only section uh, so much uh, with this focused ion beam. And so it takes a lot of time, and also you can only have a small volume. And so this has been a big issue with the focus ion beam uh, imaging. Uh, but with the oxygen plasma beam, uh, what you can do uh, is actually you can expose a big surface, in this case, 400 by 400 micron um, um, surface. And then you can image any of these volume, any of this uh, surface here, and you can actually create a 3D volume in any particular locations uh, within this. And this process is actually quite fast. Uh, this is the oxygen plasma beam. And then uh, they actually combine this with the uh, spinning of the samples so that you can actually scratch the surface in a way uh, that uh, you can see here. And then you can image any of this surface here. And then the great thing about oxygen plasma beam is that this oxygen actually um, neutralizes the, um, the charges on the surface. So you don't actually have to coat uh, these samples with any uh, heavy metals or carbons uh, in order to actually image them. And so any plastic uh, that you put your specimens in, you can image with this um, technique. And then uh, another aspect that I should mention here is that you don't actually need to have heavy, uh, heavy metal stain. 
So any tissue that you actually have already in the uh, in the shell, uh, you can actually uh, uh, put it into uh, this system, and then you can actually get uh, uh, great images. And so I really highly recommend this uh, approach. And so this is actually uh, the inside of the microscope. Uh, this is the oxygen uh, plasma beam coming in from the side, and you can scratch the surface, and then you can then image with the electrons. And so uh, you cannot really see the beam, but uh, you can imagine how this is really happening in this um, chamber. And so this is my samples. Uh, uh, this is the hippocampal organotypic slices uh, that we sent to uh, Tom Fisher for imaging. And you can see that uh, how big this volume uh, really is. And then what's nice thing about the one nice thing about uh, this approach is that you can actually see, identify the locations of interest uh, because you are exposing so much surface area. And then you can just identify a region of interest and then say, I wanna take images uh, from these locations and then uh, uh, make a 3D volume uh, from uh, those particular locations. And so these are the typical images that we get uh, out of the system. Uh, you can see a nice vesicles that I told you about uh, in uh, in synapses. And then uh, you can actually really zoom into this uh, volume. Uh, and then actually you can see uh, exocytic pips uh, using this particular uh, method. Uh, vesicles are uh, seen, And then you can see some other organelles like multivesicular bodies, uh, mitochondria over here. Uh, so all of those uh, can be actually visualized with this technique. And so again, um, we didn't do any special treatment uh, in this particular case. For serial broad face imaging, you typically have to add a lot of heavy metals, uh, but we didn't. And so here we just have 1% osmium and just 0.1% uranate during the free substitution. And then uh, here we just use uh, epoxy based uh, resin, uh, nothing special, uh, something that we already had um, on the shelf and we uh, shipped it to uh, some official for imaging. And so the biggest question then is, uh, can we actually really visualize where the receptors are? And then can we actually uh, visualize their locations relative to uh, the fusion events? And so here uh, we, uh, we can do that. And so we uh, cut the sections uh, five, every 10 nanometer in this particular case, uh, so that the uh, both particles won't be overlapping in, in the next sections. And then you can see uh, where the gold particles are in a particular section as uh, each line indicates. And so here, for example, this uh, particular section uh, had two gold particles. And then you can see where uh, these are relative to, um, to each other in a 3D space. And so uh, this is uh, NMDA receptors. And as we saw in the 2D images, uh, their location seems to be quite different. And then, in fact, uh, AMPA receptor seems to have two clusters per synapsis. Um, and then uh, there's only one cluster per one cluster of NMDA receptor uh, in each synapse. And then uh, their location is actually quite different. AMPA receptors are more edge localized, whereas NMDA receptors are really in the center of uh, the synapses. And this is also quantified, uh, as you can see, NMDA receptors are towards the center, whereas amper receptors are towards the edge of the postnatal density. And so where are the release sites relative to these receptors? Uh, can we actually uh, capture fusing vesicles with the receptors? 
then yes, we can. And so we combine zap and freeze technique with the smash technique uh, to really visualize where the receptors are related to the fusion events. And so here is the images. Uh, you can see where the gold particles are. These are the vesicles that are docked at the uh, particular locations. This is a no stimulation control. After stimulation, we can capture fusing vesicles, and you can see where the receptors are relative to these um, events. And you can see where uh, the NMD receptors, we can do the same. Uh, we can see no stimulation control where we can see these vesicles that are docked at the, docked at the plasma membrane. Uh, but when you look at after the stimulation, you can see a fusion event, uh, but uh, quite distant from uh, the fusing vesicles, you see gold particles uh, of NMD receptors. And so if you compare uh, where these receptors are related to the fusing events, yeah, as predicted from um, based on the affinity of these uh, receptors to the glutamate, uh, you can see the ampere receptors are really close to uh, the uh, fuse, fusing vesicles. Uh, so this is the distance from uh, fusing vesicles or pits uh, to the, each of the gold particles that we see. And so you can see the ampere receptors are really clustered uh, near the pits, whereas the NMDA receptors are much, much farther away uh, from where the fusing vesicles are. And so these, uh, from these, we concluded that these sites are lying with the ampere receptors, but not so much with the NMDA receptors. And so just uh, to summarize, uh, this is uh, what we are thinking, what, what we think is happening, uh, where we think that um, the, um, there are a bunch of vesicles that are docked at the plasma membrane. And then when you actually stimulate, the calcium comes in, uh, causing the fusion of vesicles. And then in this case, uh, what happens is that those vesicles that are aligned closer to the ampa receptors actually fuse uh, in response to the calcium influx. And then this activates the uh, ampa receptors more than NMD receptors. And so with this technique, uh, we can actually do, we can visualize membrane and protein dynamics, and then we can uh, visualize um, uh, protein and uh, membrane dynamics in uh, three-dimensional space. And so I just want to end my talk by uh, thanking all the people who actually did the work. Uh, this uh, project was led by uh, former graduate st students of my lab, uh, Shuori and then Grant Cusick, uh, with the help from uh, Morgan Jin and Smana, and then uh, Sarah, Sarah. And then uh, we have a bunch of collaborators for this project, and then all that. Uh, this is my funding source for uh, this particular project. And so thank you for listening. And now I'm happy to take any questions that you may have. Thank you for that presentation, Shigeki. We will now hear from Ron Kelly, application scientist at Thermo Fisher Scientific. Uh, thank you, Shigeki, for your excellent presentation today and to the audience for listening. My name is Ron Kelly, and I'm an application scientist with uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific. And I wanted to let you know where you can find out more information about the Hydra. The Hydra can perform volume EM imaging on many sample types, ranging from tissues to proteins, under cryogenic and also room temperature conditions. It can also be used to prepare lamellae for cryotomography. So if you're interested uh, and want to learn more about the Hydra and other volume EM techniques like serial block face imaging or array tomography, you can visit thermofisher.com slash volume EM.
Thanks so much, Shigeki and Ron, for those presentations. Um, we'll be starting the Q&A soon, and if anyone has a question, you can put that in the questions box at the top right of your screen. Um, but before we do that, we've got a few polled qu poll questions for the audience. Um, so the first question um, should be appearing now. Which of the following volume EM techniques do you currently use in your laboratory? So I'll give everyone um, a few moments to answer that. And I guess in the meantime, we can go on to the first question. Um, so the first question, um, Shigeki, can your approach with the Hydra microscope uh, benefit connectomics? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the great thing about this Hydra is that you can actually cut more, uh, you know, uh, slices, and then it's gonna be much, much bigger volume than uh, how it has been, and so you have enough resolution to resolve connect connect connections between neurons, and also you have much, much faster uh, speed for acquisition of images, and so yeah. The, this is really optimal for connectomics. Great, thanks. Um, do we have the results of the first poll? Great. Oh, that's a good spread of things. Um, lots of different techniques that people are using. Um, I guess we can move on to the second poll question for the audience in the meantime, and that is do you currently work with cryo-electron microscopy or tomography? Um, and again, we'll move on with another question. Um, so what other research applications um, do you see spin mill supporting? And I guess that could be a question for, for both of you. Yeah, I can take this first. And then, so, I mean, anything that you want to do, uh, looking in 3D volume, um, but at the special resolution that electron microscopy allows, um, that's uh, what the hydro allows. So yeah, any applications that you can think of, uh, if you want to make a 3D volume, uh, this is probably the way to do it. Ron, any thoughts? Uh, I, I think the one of the bigger benefits of this technique is that it sort of bridges the gap from low resolution to high resolution. So it exposes a huge uh, area to survey. Um, and then you can focus in on smaller areas to collect data on. So um, exploration of a large area and data collection on smaller areas is pretty ben beneficial for saving time and mm -hmm. searching for needles in a haystack. They're uh, a little bit easier to track this way. Definitely, yeah. Um, do we have the results of the second poll? Before we move on with that. Um, Oh, lots of people don't yet work with cryo-EM or tomography, and, but want to, so <laughs> good to have everyone here and learning new things. Um, we've got a question, a few questions that just came in. Um, let's read this one. What is the biggest width that you can image um, with PFIP SEM? Uh, the biggest width, you said? Yeah. yeah. Uh, field of view is uh around a millimeter somewhere around 900 microns um yep <laughs> so around a millimeter thanks yep. um 
And another question, I think this one's for Shigeki. Um, why do you use oxygen but not other plasma species? Yeah, well, um, I mean, this is probably better answered by Ron, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what oxygen is good for is actually the fact that like they can neutralize the charges on the surface. And so um, you don't get this artifact, you know, charging artifact. So the plastic doesn't melt or like you have this meeting, uh, you know, uh, issues. So that's uh, part of the reason that the oxygen is used. Um, but Ron probably has better insight into this. No, I think, yeah, you pointed out the, the, the shining star benefit from oxygen there. But I, I think you, you do have other choices for ion species. So why did, why did we choose oxygen? Um, the other ion species have other advantages, like um, if you wanted to remove uh, large volumes of material faster than with oxygen, you could switch to xenon. Um, it turns out for this application, oxygen makes the sample conductive, and it also gives us a smoother cross-section surface, so very polished um, result. Um, that's a second advantage. So choices, there, there are advantages with different material types. Maybe we have uh, sputter rates or uh, you get a better result with uh, argon sputtering on when you have different materials mixed in together. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in this case, oxygen is the best choice. And yeah, I think Shigeki's application shows it well. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually um, covered the next question also, which is how important is oxygen for spin milling of large areas? We talked about that. Um, ooh, we've got a question that just came in. Um, let me just read this quickly. Uh, a question about the resolution on the plasma fib stack was written as five by five by two. Does that mean plasma could mill with a two nanometer step? Yeah, so um, that's correct. Uh, as far as I understand it, you can get down to two nanometer. Um, I don't know how practical this is, but uh, yeah, in, 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 in principle, you can. Good. Um, and then the the last question that just came in, it's currently the last question, unless anything else comes in, is could this zip and freeze device um, be applied to cryo samples? Okay, uh, yes and no. So uh, yes, uh, you, if you just um, culture your cells on a sapphire, then uh, you can definitely do that. Uh, the problem with the TEM grid is that uh, it's electron conductive, and so we cannot apply field stimulation that way. And so mm -hmm. uh, with that, um, you might have to use a different substrate. Uh, so, you, you know, uh, still sapphire is a way to do it. Uh, like you can just do, you know, cryofib milling afterwards to, you know, put that into um, the cryofib machine. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you can then take the lamella to the cryo uh, tomography. Um, yeah. So yes, uh, you can do that, but at the same time, uh, there's some limitations. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, we actually had two people asking about cryo applications. So, <laughs> um, another question is what is involved in switching the plasma source, for example, from xenon to oxygen? It's maybe a question for Ron. Yeah. Um, uh, switching the plasma source is, is uh, integrated. It's basically you, you click a drop-down menu and choose which ion species you want. Uh, it's like a five-minute 
I think the spec is 10 minutes, but it's usually quicker than that to change. Um, and it's all automated. So it's just a software click. Great. Amazing. That sounds easy. <laughs> um, and again, this is currently the last question. I'm just, they're, they're just coming in as I ask them. So it's really hard to say that wh whether it's really the last, but what grid types do you use to obtain such a large sample area? Uh, this is for one, I, I think. Um, I mean, technically, you don't actually use grids in this. Uh, you are just uh, putting the samples onto a stab for SEM, and then you are putting it into the SEM. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so the samples that I typically send to uh, some fisher in this particular case is um, it's basically a whole block. Uh, it's a big, you know, block face um, that I just sent, and then they will just do a meeting. So you are technically just using a stab in this case. Um, and another good question from Roberto following that is what are the benefits of FIB versus other serial imaging techniques? Sure, you've thought about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say it's more automated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so any serial imaging technique, otherwise it's a little bit harder. Uh, mm -hmm. Array tomography may be another way to do it, um, but there's also you know benefits and disadvantage in that as well. So uh, the film meeting uh, with oxygen plasma, I think it's um, it's a good compromise. You have a larger volume, and then uh, it's uh, easy of use. So yeah. Yep, I would add. Uh, well, Shigeki showed two nanometer slice thickness, um, so you have some controls down to very thin slices uh, if needed. Um, that's one. And also it exposes a really large uh, surface area. So I don't know, 800 microns in diameter is possible. Um, so you can explore large volumes, larger areas. Yeah, great. Thanks. <laughs> um, and the next question is, how specific is the nano gold labeling? Did you try the same setting without his tag? Yeah, yes. So uh, we've done a control experiment. Um, I think I've, I've shown this uh, control experiment where we add the hello tag instead of his tag. And then we basically essentially see no uh, background staining. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't occlude, you know, uh, some uh, background uh, staining uh, because there are enough native proteins that contain uh, polyhistidine in sequence. And so uh, you do get a little bit of backgrounds that way. Mm -hmm. um, but when we looked at, you know, this particular location within the synapses, uh, we actually did not see any uh, staining, background staining. And so, yeah, depends on, yeah, where you look at. Great. So I think we've worked our way through all of the questions and <laughs> there were quite a lot of questions. So it was great. Um, one thing to note is if you would like to find out more information about Thermo Fisher volume electromicroscopy, like the Hydra cryoplasma fit microscope or speak to an expert, please visit thermofisher.com slash forward slash VEM. Um, and I think that brings us to the end of our webinar today. So thank you again, Shigeki, for a very illuminating presentation. And thank you, Ron, for providing more information. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, Thermo Fisher. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. 
So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Thermo Fisher and Bite Size Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listening from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.